You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Go for it. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it. This thing is a blank page for you now. You have got groups of legends who are putting together things in places so that you won't have to go through this. So you need to know how to read a contract. Don't just let your agent read a contract. You need to know how much you are worth. Welcome to the Black Business of Broadway, a podcast brought to you by the Broadway League and Black to Broadway. Here, we highlight the stories, how-tos, and successes of the Black professionals and legends of Broadway. I am your host, Janine Scott. I want to welcome our guest who needs no introduction because when he opens his mouth, you will instantly know who he is. <laughs> he is the Tony Award-winning Best Feature Actor for his role as Genie in Disney's Aladdin. And now he has taken on the role of Billy Flynn in the legendary production of Chicago, the one and only James Monroe Iglehart. Perfect. Well said. Yes. Long eye. Well done, Janine. Ah, yes. Yay. <laughs> Hooked on phonics worked for You're, me. Hey, girl, listen, I am with you. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today. It is, My pleasure. it is a pleasure. It is a thank pleasure you. to have you. So, James, I want to unpack um, your trek to Broadway. But first, before I do that, okay, I want to tell the audience to go watch your speech on YouTube, <laughs> your Tony speech, <laughs> because wait, 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 because that praise break at the end. Yeah. OK, it had me want to get my tambourine and start speaking in tongues. <laughs> You had every mother of every church <laughs> shouting with <Yeah>. you. <laughs> the fun part is um, I have a, a homeboy of mine who I've known for too many years. He was in my wedding. His name is Tyler Merritt. He is an author. I'll do a little plug for his book. He has a wonderful book called I Take My Coffee Black. It's amazing. It's about being a Black actor. Uh Christian as well as a musical theater person in America. And, you know, he wrote this book. It's fantastic. Go out, check it out. And the audiobook, we're both on it. It's great. You'll have a great time. I just sold this stuff. He should be happy. But um, when I got nominated for uh, the Drama Desk Award and also for the Tony Award, he calls me up and he says, listen, man, uh, you need this. There's a I hate. I hate. I hate that it's called coding, but it is. It's, it's like okay. so what, my father used to say. You have to talk to the teachers one way and the brothers in the street another way. So he calls me up and he goes from his, you know, his author voice to his homeboy voice, and he goes, "Look, man, uh, you about to, you might win, so you really have to like have something interesting to do." And so we get to the dr dr uh, drama desk awards, and I don't have a speech. 
And so they announce my name. I get up and I talk and I say, thank you to my wife, to God. I do the whole spiel. And then he gets, uh, he looks at me and says, dude, you're going to have to do something interesting at the Tonys. And I said, again, this is Tony. I'm not winning a Tony. It's not happening. I'm not preparing anything. So I prepared. I said, okay, I'm going to thank these people. And that's it. We get up there. And uh, it's a long day. You know, they're early, early in the morning. We have to go back and do a matinee. We take all the makeup off, put your suit on, go on the red carpet, do all the stuff. Think I'm going to sit my wife. Don't get to grow backstage, do the song, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden we get to the category. When I sit back down is my category. The minute I get back from performing, they call my name and it's a slow motion moment. I'm stealing a line from Robin Williams. They said, what was it like when you won the Oscar? It is a slow motion moment. Everything's going really, really fast, really slow. As I'm walking up, I look at my wife who I've been married to now as of last month, 20 years. But at that time, it was like around 15, if my, if my, no, 15, if my counting is right. So 15 years, knowing her from high school of her looking at me and saying, is this really what you want to do? I say, yes. She said, great. I'll get a real job so you can do that. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the fact that I am in Radio City Music Hall. And I'm looking at the first time I was in Radio City Music Hall was in 2010 when Memphis won the Tony and we weren't even allowed to sit in the audience. And then I'm looking out in the audience and there is Audra McDonald and there is Norm Lewis. And I'm looking at Thomas Schumacher, who not only is my boss, but I have watched on DVD extras of Disney movies all of my life. And I'm looking at my boy, Josh Henry, who we came up together, you know, doing this business. And I look all around and I begin to think about my mom saying, keep God first in your life when you're doing anything. And we go to tell everybody what's going on. And I, I, there's a moment I used to hear in church where they would say, there's a moment where you just can't have words anymore. And it wasn't planned. And there's this quick story about that. I, I just, I had to give a praise shout. There was nothing else I could do. And what I did not expect was for half of the audience to stand up and praise with me. And I looked and you could see all of the African-Americans on Broadway and in the community were up on their feet. I get backstage. I became friends with Zachary Levi that night because Zachary is, is, a, is a believer. I get backstage. People are like, the brother who takes me off with my award, he's like, say, man, you know, I didn't expect anybody to do that. You know, I go to this church, so on and so. And then all of a sudden at the end, Jesse Mueller, thanks God. It's one of those moments. And then all of a sudden, as the next week, this lady from some Southern place, this Southern white lady comes up and she she says, I wasn't going to see Aladdin. And then I saw you praise. And I told my husband we had to buy tickets because if that man is there, we have to go support the show. It was an amazing, amazing moment. And then there was a kid who came up to me and was like, do that little dance thing you did at the Tonys. And I had to explain. <laughs> I was like, that's not a thing. I said, that is a, a moment of joy. That is a moment of inspiration, moment of being touched by the spirit. And you just go, this is what it is. And you can't that you can't manufacture that. So you saying that, um, it, I, I did not expect it to be a thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it. But then again, someone said, someone said, do you do realize you shouted on the Tonys? <laughs> it was, was like the blackest moment ever. I, somebody, I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think about, you don't, you know, when, when realness comes, you don't think about the time. And I was like, yeah, uh, I guess it is. Okay. But that's, well, that's what happened. In your speech in 2014, when you won the Tonys, um, during your speech, you said that you you mentioned you prayed for this moment yes. uh, since you were 17 years old. Can you tell us, how did you know that this was what you were meant to do? I knew this was what I was meant to do when I had my first solo in the Sunshine Choir when I was four years old. My mom was a singer in church and my dad was an actor in the 1970s. If you 
Google James Iglehart, you'll see a lot of me, but every now and then you'll see a really, really buff, light-skinned brother with an afro, and that's my father. And um, that's what I had in the house. I had performers in the house. And so the first time I sang a solo and the people applauded, <laughs> my brain went, well, I don't know what the hell this is, but whatever it is, I want to hear this for the rest of my life. So I knew then that I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be in front of people and, and do this. So this is all I wanted to pursue. But when I, I got serious, when I got to be a teenager, that this musical theater thing was, you know, mm -hmm. I think where I wanted to, to go. And I started watching, you know, I watched the Tonys, you know, just as a thing. But as I got, I got in a show choir when I was 16. And so I started really watching the Broadway stuff. I always went to Broadway. I, I shouldn't say I never went to Broadway. I was from California, but I always went to all the tours, all the tourings that mm -hmm. came. So I always saw that. But when I finally started watching the Tonys, I was like, this is, this is cool. I, I like this. And I, I want to be there someday. I want to be there someday. I, I distinctly remember watching Chuck Cooper win for the life. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. And then I found out that one of my heroes, uh, Ted Ross, who's the original lion in The Wiz, won the same award. And I was like, okay, so that's 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 where I need to be. Because if these brothers are doing it, then I want to do, do that. So that's what I meant by I prayed for it. Because I kept saying, at the time, uh, you know, when you're when you're a teenager, you think you know exactly where you want to be. And mm -hmm. that was the pinnacle. You know, being on the Tony Awards was the pinnacle. Being on Broadway was the pinnacle. That was it. And so you had to get there. So you all your, your drive, everything. My friends were, let's go out to a party. No, I must get to Broadway. It's like, dude, right. you are in Hayward, California. You are so far. We can at least go get ice cream. Why are you why are you why are you hustling at nine o'clock at night? What's wrong? What you doing? It was really, really so. I was on the grind, and that wasn't even working. At sixteen, you joined show choir. Yeah. As a, I'm assuming you were still pretty tall. Yeah. You yeah. you have some size, yeah. and as a big black man. Yeah. In show choir. Yeah. How how did your peers receive you? Um, my white peers had no problem. Okay. My brothers had uh, interesting views. Uh -huh. uh, but I was always, uh, I'm that, I'm that black kid that always had, that had interesting views from other African-American men. Um, my father was very strict on how we spoke and how we acted. My grandmother, uh, used to jump on my mother for putting us in granimal outfits. We had to dress a certain way, look a certain way, be a certain way, talk. We were Eaglehearts and we had to be a certain way, regardless of how ratchet the family might be on the inside. But on mm -hmm. the outside, mm -hmm. we had to be a certain way when we spoke to people and so you go to when you're in a christian school private school it's fine then my father put me to public school and the brother's like why you talk that way why you talk mm -hmm. white why you why you do that why you why you sing that white music mm -hmm. and uh i had to explain it to him two ways i said one guys i i like this music you know you have to admit it because you can't lie but also i i explained it in a way that they would understand and it kind of shut them up i said guys listen man i could be in a bus full of dudes playing football and, and basketball and baseball. Or I could be in a bus while you guys are all by yourself. I am surrounded by gorgeous women who want to sing and want to dance with me and want me to throw them in the air. Now, who of us is the smart one? And I'm sure they were quiet. Oh, they were real. They were mad. They were like, "How? <laughs> you, wait, you mean girls? Let's put it this way. Three of the brothers that were dissing me joined show choir. That's all, all right. I got to say. Well, there you go. You were a recruiter. I was like, <laughs> bruh, 
I am in here by myself. I told the show choir teacher I didn't want to do it anymore because my mom was a school teacher. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. And then I went to a winter concert and saw this kid sing and all the girls started screaming. I was like, oh, come on. I can do that. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm a teenage boy. That was my motivation. The girls are screaming. Sure, I'll be there. Exactly. So who would you say knowingly or unknowingly um, encouraged you or inspired you along the way? Oh, um, definitely. uh, My mom and my dad, Uh, they they were never, ever the parents who said you shouldn't do this. They were definitely the parents who said you can, you will be great. But they were totally honest. They were like, you are going to get knocked down. You are going to hear no. There are going to be teachers that don't like you, students that don't like you, black people that don't like you, white people that don't like you. This you're going to you're you're going into a business where everything is literally up against you. But you are talented. And if this is what you want to do, go do it. And if you don't want to do it, don't. But my father was, you know, he and my mom were so strong on the look whatever you do, you do to the best of your ability. My father used to say something really stupid. If you're going to be a bum, be the best bum you can be. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's the <laughs> stupidest. Kind of, who is the best bum? And it's so funny because my wife, Dawn, she always says, she goes, look, if we're going to do something, we're doing it. We don't half-ass in this family. We do. So that's what we tell the kids. Like, if you're going to do something, we're, we're going all the way. So let us know because we're supporting. We don't want to hear nothing if we're going. So that's what it was. It was really just, I really want to do this. And they were so supportive with me about this. And I, I had a couple of, I had a dear friend of mine, um, his name is John Long at the time. He was my first like real best friend. And he, he told me one time, he was four years old, three years older than me. And he was like, dude, you know, you have talent. So why not just go for it? Why, why are you waiting? Who are you waiting on? Cause I wanted to be a, you know, a new addition. He was like, why are you waiting for He's like, why are you waiting for a group? Just be solo. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, even Bobby Brown has backup dances. He was like, yeah, but you don't have that kind of, you know, money right now. So just go be solo and see what happens. And, you know, so between my parents and him and this beautiful, crazy girl named Dawn, who eventually became my wife, who I met in show choir. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I met her the first day uh, when I was when I was going to, to, to my new high school. Uh, she was also so between those four people. Those were the, that was my support system to do to do this. And so your career started in Broadway in 2006 with the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Spelling Bee oh, correct? Yeah. Yes, yes. But, okay, so prior to that, though, mm-hmm. there were there had to be some moments where you started. Oh, yeah. Uh, so how, do, how did you keep that mental fortitude to, to keep saying, I'm going to make it to Broadway, I'm going to be here? My ego, my ego of, uh, you know, there's a moment where you have to let this go, but it is a motivator. I was going to show them, whoever them are. I was going to show them. All the dudes who talked mess to me, all the girls who broke up with me, all the girls who wouldn't look at me. I'm I'm going to show them. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be a star someday. And when I'm a star, they're going to call me for tickets and I'm going to go, no, you can't get no tickets for me. You know what I mean? It was that motivation. It was that looking up there and going, uh, you know, it's, you have to look at the list of people. Prince, you know, Morris Day, all these guys that I wanted to be like, you know, Bootsy Collins, George Clinton. I was looking at Ben Vereen. I was looking at Ted Ross. I was looking at Nipsey Russell. I was looking at all of these people, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Gregory Hines. I was looking at all these people. and I was like, ah, they're all on Broadway. I want to be like that. And I was gunning, you know, so I was every time I was either singing in somebody's four quartet to be boys to men or I was, you know, dancing in somebody's show. And it just that just pushed me. I knew I had to be there. There wasn't another choice for me. I, I just all I wanted to do was be a star because I thought 
that was going to make me feel better about the life I had, which is a whole different story, which we may get into later. But it's <laughs> I thought I thought that being a star would make the bullies go away. I thought mm. that being a star would make the girls show up. I thought that being a star would make the financial issues that my parents had go away. I knew that if I could just be, because I didn't know anything about it. All I saw was what was on TV or what was on stage. And when you just see that, it looks so perfect. They don't have any problems. There weren't any social media for anybody to tell you, hey, I saw so-and-so doing something, something, something. You know, it was mm -hmm. just entertainment tonight, which was just perfect. Nobody said anything. It was just Jet Magazine, and it was always the front mag, and everything was great. It was Ebony Magazine. It was just the beautiful, mm -hmm. glossy moments, and nothing, No, none of those stars ever had any problems. And right. I knew if I could just be there, everything would be okay. So everything in my spirit was gunning towards that. And right. so when you had that kind of motivation, when you just go, look, I've got no other sidetrack. There is news like, maybe you can, you know, people say, get another degree, you get some on the side. No, there is no fail. It's, you've got to make it. Yeah. And then once you make it, then that's when reality hits and you start going, oh, snap, this, wait, what, adulting? <laughs> I didn't, adults do what? Taxes? What? Pay? Right. What and then you, you realize rent? life isn't perfect, right? Yeah. Oh, God, listen, that, that's, we'll get to that later, but that, that was a crashing down moment. <laughs> Right. Well, no, I mean, I think, you know, James, you hit on something that so many of us and when I say us, I mean, black folks mm -hmm. deal with. I mean, even with your grandmother, I, I know that exact same thing. It's like, oh, we're going Montgomery Board, JCPenney. Why are you shopping at Kmart? We're not doing blue, yeah, blue light special. Call me right. mother. Call mm -hmm. me father. Yes. You know, what's, what happens in the house stays in the in house. The house. What so, happens in the house, you girl, you are so right. What happens now stays in the house. No one knows that our family has problems. They don't need to know that. Don't be telling people your business. Don't be telling people your business. That's yeah. right. I mean, so I, I, I definitely understand it, and I think many of our listeners probably understand that as well because some of them are probably in those exact same shoes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right now, thinking that it's it's glossy and it and once i make it yes you know. it's the it, and that's the thing you know you go once i make it it will be okay and then you realize honestly there is no making it because if you make it the journey's over and then there's that word journey that's what it is but it takes you you have to be older to know that it is a journey, it's not a destination. Once you get to the destination, now the fun part is I'm 47 years old and I still have to tell myself that. I still mm -hmm. have to say, it's a journey, it's not a destination. Once the destination is over, you're dead. So keep living the journey and find new things to strive for because the journey's not over yet. But when you're a kid, when you're 17, when you're in high school, or when you're a freshman in college and everything looks so far away, when you're in Hayward, California, and New York is literally across the country, when Hollywood is only eight hours away, but it still seems like it's light years away, mm -hmm. all you want to, it looks like that's the place to be. And then you realize it's not even a place. It's just, it's a job. Mm -hmm. It's a great job. It's a fantastic job. It's an it's a wonderful adventure and job that you can use to your advantage to help other folks understand what you're going through and maybe help them get to where they need to get to. But it is not a destination. And fame is not a real thing. Fame is a moment in time 
for a project that you did. And if enough people like it, they'll talk about it for a little bit. And then that becomes this metaphorical drug that you keep chasing because you just want that feeling that I have, I'm here. And when you're not, and you see other people are doing it. I mean, I don't know if I could have made it where I have today in my career, if there'd have been a Facebook, a social media, if there'd have been a Twitter, because I know what kind of kid I was. I was so busy looking at what other people were doing that I, I got to do it too because they're rum. If I had what's going on today, I think I would have drowned. I really don't know if I would have. I had to be a grown person to get my to get my ego and myself and my spirit strong enough to go, you can do this on your own without looking at what everybody else is doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now look, you you have you you have quote unquote made it. <laughs> okay. Technically, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like I I see your face on buses. <laughs> And on billboards. Right. And, and and when I hear your voice, I know it's you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, you know, you you've created this, you stepped into this iconic, you know, character yeah. played by an iconic actor. Yeah. You know, how did you how did you approach that role of genie? That was a fun moment. Uh, I have loved Jeannie since I, again, 17 was like a milestone in my life. That's when I first saw the movie in 1992. And, but when we got to the actual part of the show, all I knew was that I knew, I knew I was funny and I knew I had to bring a little bit of me to it, you know, cause I had studied enough, you know, animation and Broadway to know, okay, Robin is being Robin, but he's being Robin with the volume turned up. I'm a mm-hmm. big professional wrestling fan. Like I'm a professional wrestling fan fiend. and. Stone Cold Steve Austin and Dwayne The Rock Johnson both said that the characters we played in wrestling is our personalities with the volume turned up to like 20. So I was like, okay, Genie has to be me with the volume turned up to about 20. But I was nervous because being an African-American male stepping into Genie, um, I had Disneyland had a Aladdin adventure, which was 45 minutes in Orlando, you know, in um, in Anaheim. And they weren't ever auditioning black dudes for genie they were always auditioning black dudes for jafar and i remember my friends went to audition i was like i don't want to be jafar there's no point in me going because i know who i know what character i would destroy so why would i go in for something i don't want to do so i never went in for disneyland which was i'm so happy i didn't but when this came around they gave me the role casey hired me and i you know tom schumacher hired me and i was like oh great i've got this oh no i've got this what do i do and i had this fantastic conversation with of all people Jonathan Freeman. For those who don't know who Jonathan Freeman is, Jonathan Freeman is the only um, English-speaking Jafar you've ever heard. So in the movie, it's Jonathan Freeman. Until two weeks ago on Broadway, Jafar was played by Jonathan Freeman. If you've been in any park, if you've heard any cartoon, if you've played any game, if it's in English, it's Jonathan Freeman. And he sat me down and he said, I said, John, I'm so glad to do this, but I'm so I'm really nervous that the audience is going to be, you know, hate me or whatever. And he said, oh, you shouldn't. He goes, because you're exactly what Howard Ashman was looking for. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when the film was first conceived, Jeannie was supposed to be uh, like Cab Calloway, Fats Waller. That's why if you listen to the music, all of the music in Aladdin is Broadway, except for Jeannie stuff. It's all big band. That's how they originally did it. And the original demos, which Alan Menken played for me, they were singing it like a Cab Calloway tune. That's what they were going for. And the film, when Disney bought the film, they bought the rights to Thief of Baghdad, which I can't think of the black man's name. It's Rex something. He was also in Cabin in the Sky. 
Rex played the genie. It's a black man playing the genie in this because <laughs> genies were slaves. Right. Yeah. Genies were magical creatures that were slaves to the lamp. And mm -hmm. that's why they called everybody master and blah, blah, blah. So, genie, so, you know, you switch that when you get I dream of genie was a white woman, blah, blah, blah. Right, but yeah. honestly, it was. Genie yeah, was but the black, history. The yeah. history of a genie was a black man. And that was the thing. And it, it, different places, it's different things, whatever. But in this movie, that's how they did it. And that's how Howard and Alan saw it. So once he said that to me, it, I literally, I know it's going to sound crazy, stupid, metaphorical, but the shackles were broken. I was like, wait, he's a black man? Oh, I got this. Because I did my, <laughs> I did my, you know, I did my tech, quote unquote, thesis on Fats Waller when I did Amos Behaven and I studied okay. Cab Calloway. And so I was like, this Cotton Club, th this, I know this. So between knowing that, loving Robin Williams style, loving stand-up comedians and being a Disney nerd, I was like, okay. This thing, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And they're either going to love me or hate me. But this is what we're getting. And I did it. And when Alan didn't hate it and when Disney didn't hate it, I'm like, the audience will see what happens. And they let me go. And don't get me wrong. They pulled me back a couple of times. There were a couple of jokes I threw. And they were like, no, 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 you can't. <laughs> this is Disney. And you tap? I, I do not tap. Let me let me let me qualify. I tapped in the show. Oh, okay. I learned how to tap for the show. I need to say that because people be calling me like, yo, so I know you tap. I'm like, yeah, cool, hold time out. I, I learned to tap for the show. Um, and I can if if you know, if given time, I can learn the piece, but I am not a tapper. Like I've got friends like Jared Grimes, uh, Daniel Watts, these mm -hmm. brothers, you know, DeWitt, the, these brothers yeah. tap. I am a mover who can imitate things and look really good doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from Jeannie, you went to Freestyle Love Supreme and Hamilton. Actually, and, actually, uh -huh. I was I was in Freestyle of Supreme bef way before Jeannie. Really? Yeah, I didn't I've know been that. I've been with Freestyle of Supreme for uh, as of 2022, about 16, 17 years. Wow. When I was in Spelling Bee, uh, well, before Spelling Bee, actually, uh -huh. um, I met Chris Jackson. We became really good friends. And I we, I, 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 yeah. I, I, te I teased Jackson because we were broke together. We were doing this horrible show in the Bay Area together. And he was he was bemoaning the fact, yo, man, this In the Heights thing got to work. I got a wife. I got a baby. And I was like, yo, man, this Memphis thing got to work. I got a wife and a rent. Oh, my God. And so the things worked out. And we became friends. And in, in that conversation, he was like, yo, I got this group called Freestyle Supreme. You should join. Because we, we were outside freestyling, you know, just yeah, looking yeah. at the stars and just freestyling. Because we had nothing better to do. We were freestyling about everything and thinking we are just dope right. rappers. Just, right, you know. Right. And that's how I, when I was in Boston for Spelling Bee, I did. Uh, along with um, Utkarsh Imbakar, who is now like, you know, big time on Ghost CBS. And mm -hmm. we joined at the same day. So I joined Free Self Supreme in 2007, 2006, actually. Wow. And so I've been with the group. That was when I didn't have anything, when there was no job or uh -huh. nothing, we were on tour. We were playing colleges. We were playing malls. Janine, when I say we were playing malls, I'm saying we were in the middle of the mall rapping about a drink that's not even around anymore. Remember Slice Cola or Slice? Yes, yes, yes. They yes. hired us to rap. And so we had to freestyle in the mall in Baltimore. And there's nothing like being in Baltimore and brothers walking by going, what are y'all doing? You know, and then we would have to be dope so they wouldn't like throw things at us. You know, it's just me and two white boys up there rapping in Baltimore <laughs> as they walk by and we are freestyling and dummies will say, yo, man, rap about uh, corn dogs. His brother had a corn dog in his hand. And so I started flowing the corner. He was like, 
oh, that was dope. Next thing you know, more people were coming. By the time we got like half the mall, security was trying to find out what we were doing. So like, I've been with this group where back before it was, back before Lynn was famous, but we, mm -hmm. were, we were just trying to mm -hmm. do this. So yeah, freestyle, the fact that, the fact that freestyle made it to Broadway, right. if you'd have told us in 2006 that Freestyle of Supreme would be on Broadway, all of us, including Lynn, including Tommy, including all those Kennedy Center Honor brothers, we would have laughed in your face. And the fact that we made it and it's a tour and we have a school and that people are wanting to study and what? Right. It Literally, that was a thing we did to make money when we didn't have what we thought we wanted. And now right. it's one of our favorite things. If you call Free Self Supreme, all the guys, all the family shows up, no matter what TV, no matter what movie we're doing, everybody shows up to the show. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's, yeah. that's stuff that you did in, on the bus. Yes. In the schoolyard. And we were like, they're going to pay us? Really? I, I guess so. Let's go. <laughs> well, and it prepared you for Hamilton. Yes, it did. <laughs> because yes, it there's did. a whole lot of fast talking oh, there. Oh, my gosh. I, I remember um, I was a Lynn called me and said, hey, I got this uh, this idea for the Hamilton mixtape. We're going to do it at Lincoln Center and I want you to play Mulligan. I said, cool. So the first Mulligan publicly was mm -hmm. yours truly. So I got to be up there with some great people. John Rua, Chris, UTK, Mandy Gonzalez. Which, I mean, wonderful. Gavin Creole, just great. Lynn is there and he puts out the first eight songs of the show. And then the same night, Casey Nicola was there and says, hey, we just did Aladdin in Seattle. I think we have to do a demo for the Disney people. So when Tommy came to me and said, hey, we're going to finish, we're going to go finish this journey with Hamilton. Do you want to go with us? I said, you know what, dude, I'm going to stick with this Aladdin thing and see what happens. And he said, I totally understand that. Do your thing. You have our blessing. And I said, I know Hamilton's going to be a hit. We didn't know how big it was going to be, but we mm -hmm. knew it was going to be a hit. So I'm in, uh, G I'm in Aladdin. I get a call for a free ticket to come see, of course, the opening night because I'm a part of the Free Subs of Fiend family. I'm sitting there. I see the show and I'm like, oh, damn, you know, <laughs> because honestly, we were in. Um, we were in New Orleans doing a Freestyle of Supreme uh, gig for ESPN. And I got a call about Aladdin. And that's the same moment, literally behind me, Tommy Kale is asking David Diggs, I got this project called Hamilton. I think you'd be part of it. You want to be down? And Diggs goes, you know, his voice, yeah, man, sounds interesting. I'm down. Why? Let me just try it. That was when he first introduced Diggs to the, to the potential of being in the show. Because Diggs was a part of Freestyle of Supreme. We were right. all together. So when I see it, I'm like, this is great. This is fabulous. I'm so happy for my friends. They got their thing. I got mine. Never in a million years did I think I would get a call. And then they, they said, you know, Tommy calls me up one day and says, hey, do you want to come back to the Ham Fam? And I was like, are you serious? I was like, well, you know, I'm doing Genie. I don't know if I want to do Mulligan. No disrespect to Mulligan. But he was like, no, no, no. I want you to do Jefferson, you know, Jefferson. Um, Lafayette. Lafayette. And I was like, Diggs is wrong? Diggs is one of the fastest rappers period like not just in the show like his own music is yes ridiculous so i said like let me think about it and i called up Diggs. i'm like i don't think i can do this he was like you can do this they i said I, i'm not you and he was like that's the point right they want to now make it so that the care these characters are not carbon copies of everybody that started it so they want you to bring your swagger to it he goes i know you can rap that fast because you do it when we're doing freestyle we're playing around so i Stepped out on faith and did it. Never in a million years I thought it was going to, you know, I knew it was going to work, but I was like, I didn't know if it was going to work as well as it did. And I'm so glad it all worked out. But I had a great time in Hamilton and got to be there with my friends and make brand new friends. Um, right. 
and uh, just be a part of that history, you know, was cool. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how do you decide what roles you, you take? Um, A couple things. One, I, if I really feel like it'd be fun for me? Will it, will it be fun? Will it further my career? Um, what's the paycheck? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> also, um, is this something that I could sustain myself doing spiritually? And what I mean by that is like, you got to love what you're doing. You can't hate going to work. And there was a moment where I almost said no to Hamilton. Cause I was like, do I really want to, you know, step in after what Diggs has created because it's such a, it's now become this iconic thing. Can I step into it and put my own spin on it and have not the audience look at me and go, what are you trying to do? You know, but when I see a role that I think could be fun and I, I also take it as a challenge, what, what scares me? Lafayette Jefferson scared me. And I said, well, if it scares me, I go, yeah, let's, uh, let's go do it. Let's conquer this. And so that's, that's what, that's the other thing that, that helps with the role. That's amazing. So let's talk about your current role for a minute. Sure. All right. Uh, you're at Chicago. You've yeah. taken on the role of Billy Flynn. What is that process like for you? You talk about making it your own. Mm-hmm. There have been there have been several, several. individuals oh, yes. who have played this role. Yeah. How do you make it your own? How do you make it so that it's it's you and it's not like Wayne Brighty or Todrick yeah. Hall or any of yeah. the others? Uh, the fun part is I know Wayne and I know Todrick. I know Wayne very well. I've known Todrick for many, many years. Um, and I also, I, I looked at uh, Billy and mm-hmm. I said, again, it scared me. I was like, Billy's outside the the zone of what James Monroe Iglehart, the brand, if I could call it that, is known for. It is usually the, you know, the big, brassy, loud, talking, jumping around, flipping, you know, bright clothes, you know, do it. That's that is me, really. And this is not that. And I said, Yeah, but there's a side of me that people don't know, that, you know, my friends know, my wife knows that. That, that there is a Billy. There is the business side, the, the side that determines when I'm going to do the show, the side that talks to the producers, the side that talks to my agent of what I want to do and how I want to do it. And I was like, yeah, let's just do it this way. Also, my pops was a businessman. When he left the business, he was he was uh, he did financial planning and things like that. And uh, the way he talked, <laughs> the way he talked to white folks in the 80s, uh, I said, that's Billy Flynn for me. <laughs> there is. There is the loud talking, high voice James. And then there's the guy who's like, no, this is what we're doing. And when my father, when, when he wanted to um, discipline the kids and he didn't want anybody to know, he would get real close to our ears and he would go, no, listen, we are in this mall. If you do anything right now, 
you will definitely regret it. And and then we would start crying. No one's like, why are they crying? And he would go, stop crying before I give you something to cry about. And it literally was like so low that only the child heard it. And that was the deepness that I brought to Billy Flynn. That's the swagger I bring to Billy, where Billy knows he's in complete control of the situation. He knows he's the smartest person in Chicago. He knows this is not even a question of whether he's going to win. He knows how to do it. He knows how to manipulate the audience. He knows how to manipulate the media. And that is the swagger that he has. And I was like, I know where to go with this. And also there's a fun part of singing in your baritone voice. You know, mm-hmm. I do a lot of songs where I, my baritone's there, but I go do a tenor note here and there. Billy is just where he is. And there is something about that that is fun to me. And he's, he, you know, there's not, there's no gray area for Billy. Billy right. knows that Billy believes everything he says. There's no moment where he's lying. When he says, all I care about is love, he means it. He just, you just have to pay for it. Right. I right. will be there for the downtrodden person, but that downtrodden person has to have enough money to pay for me. And if you don't, nothing I can do about it. I'm going to help the next downtrodden person with money because I know what this is about. And that for me, I was like, I know where to go with this. So there's a there's a definite 1980s black man swagger to it that he has that goes, because you had to be a certain way. There's even an argument I have in the show where I talk, where I say it to her in a certain dialect and then switch up when the people come in the door. Mm-hmm. And that is who, when I saw that, I thought about my dad and I was like, that's who Billy is. And yeah, so you code switched. Yeah, that's that's what, that's what that's what Billy does. There's you know there's a especially since um, I will say this about this version of Chicago. If you were to come and see it during the court case, there are three black people on stage at least all the time: the judge and Jermaine Rembert, who plays the other lawyer, and myself. So the judge and the two lawyers. When I when we we noticed it the other day because we were like Black History Month, we were like. Has anybody thought about this? Has this has this always been like this? And it, when I came in, we were like, holy crap, the judge is black. It's Jeff Gordy, Jermaine Rubin, and myself. And we, we just started cracking up like we were like, okay. <laughs> y'all, and that's how we know we have a we have far to go on Broadway, which I know we'll get to in the conversation. But when, when you get to this point and nobody questions, I was like, exactly. ah, we, we, we're doing pretty good. We, nobody's questioning this at all. So. Exactly. So what do you what do you do, you know, out outside of Broadway? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a life outside of Broadway, right? I do. I, <laughs> I, my, my wife says I have too many jobs. Uh, my favorite thing to do is I, I'm an animation buff. I love cartoons and um, I do voices for cartoons. Uh, I, I was the voice of a wonderful character named Lance Strongbow in the Rapunzel's Tangled uh, Adventures mm-hmm. on Disney Plus. I was the voice of Oscar in Vampirina. Um, I've done voices on, um, oh gosh, now I'm, I'm, oh, I did one of my favorite cartoons growing up as a kid, the reboot of DuckTales. And I am a huge, I literally have, I'm, people can't see it, but on my watch right now, I, there's Darkwing Duck. Oh, and, I see it. Yeah. And um, I got to play Terrace Bulba, who was Darkwing Duck's original uh, villain in the, in the 80s, 90s, played by Tim Curry. And now that was voiced by me when we did, they did the special hour long version of Darkwing for DuckTales. No, I sit in this closet and I do cartoons all the time. That's what I do during the day. And there's a bunch of them coming out very soon, uh, uh, next, the early later this year and next year. Um, but I, that's, that's what I do. And I do crazy. Vo- My wife is in the, her, her office and I'm in here 
sometimes barking like a dog, sometimes meowing like a cat. I've played an ogre. I've played a motorcycle. I've played a, a wizard who's afraid of magic. I do a lot of things, weird sounds in this booth. And I was that nerdy kid who knew who uh, Mel Blanc was who, you know, knew who uh, Phil Harris was. So Phil Harris is the voice of Blue. You know, all those voiceover people, I knew who they were. Uh, I just, I loved it. And so now I get to do it as an adult. And it's literally my favorite thing, Janine. I lose my mind in here. I have so much fun just in my own (laughs) kitty world, man. No, it's okay. You should never grow up, right? You should never grow up and never never be so so full of self that you can't have fun, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think that's I think that's a main issue with with people, especially you work so hard to be 18 or to be 21 so you could grow up and finally say what you want to say that you run from your childhood. You just want to be an adult and then you have these folks who are grown but they've never grown up because mm-hmm. they're just old. They've just grown old because they never got to have a chance to be a kid because they were running so hard to be run away from their childhood that now here they are and they're in their 40s or their 50s. And they don't remember anything about being a kid. So when they look at kids, they don't understand. They see a person who's 20. They don't understand. You're not in love. That's puppy love. That ain't real. Or you, you, don't know, you don't know what being, you don't know what hard times is. And you're like, no, no. Think about what it was like when you were a kid. Right, right. You know, think about that church person that said that mean thing to you that you still mm-hmm. remember, mm-hmm. that is still inside you, that you wish you could have said something, but your mama told you you couldn't because you wasn't old enough. And now mm-hmm. don't, treat th- don't treat kids like that because they may have the same scars you do. Exactly. So I've always tried to grow up and not old. Yeah, that's so, that generational trauma that we really don't talk about. Oh no, we that's we a whole do not podcast. talk about. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast, man. But it, but it is, but it is, <laughs> but it, is. It, it is, is, it really is, and it, yeah, it, yeah. It is. <laughs> Because the funny thing is, I, you know, you know, I'll start. I know we got to go. But um, it's okay. you, you meet you meet other black people, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. OK, so here's a classic scenario. You're in a you're in a cast. Somebody um, gets on the piano and starts playing something. Now, you could be Kojic. You could be Baptist. You could be Pentecostal. You could be something else, whatever. Southern, whatever, whatever. Now, you all know the song. You may not know it the same way, but you all know the song. Then That's somebody right. makes a joke about a deacon and you all start laughing. And the white folks look at you and go, did you all? They, they they ask that question. It's not mean, but they all I go, know. did you all go to the same, the same church? church? You go, no, but we all had the same experiences. Now, when you have that many people, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. We're fine. We're yeah. going to be okay. And if we don't break the cycle for the younger kids, it's going to keep on going. Right. So, you know. Well, and mama, part of mama, the... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, my no. mom and I have this conversation all the time. She goes, well, I got bad. I'm like, you weren't bad, mama. It's not that. I'm just saying that you did it because you were taught it. And I'm trying to say I'd like to do something different. That's exactly. all. Exactly. And I think part of it is that they, because of the time that they were in. Yes. And they didn't want us to have to experience the things that they experienced. So we had to be 20 times better kids than any other kid. We had to look clean because yes. otherwise we were going to be seen as dirty and homeless yes. and those poor black folks. And, mm-hmm. you and know, they didn't want was, us to be treated like that. It was a protection. I, right. always make the, I always make this joke. I was like, you know, um, there's that moment where you go, why, why are, why do, why do black comedians say, you know, white kids get to do this? But we couldn't do that. And we got beat if we did that. And it's a funny joke. But no one looks at the root cause of why that is. The root cause is, sure, 
no, no disrespect, but that white could could run out into the middle of the street, push over a kid, and then run back to the other side of the street. If our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did that, there could be dire ramifications at that. So you beat your kid before the society other could mm -hmm. to make sure they were safe. My parents just mean, they just always own me. They just, I got to be better than everybody. It's like, yeah, because to them, that was the only way to make it. But in that same token, in order to be the best at what you do, you have to be better than everybody else. That's just the doggone truth. Everybody that's on Broadway worked their butts off to be the best white, black, Asian, male, female, binary, non-binary. They worked their butt off to be the best. That's why everybody, doesn't matter whether you're from the West End or you're from Japan, everybody wants to be on Broadway. Because when you're on Broadway, you are the cream of the crop. Because you could be in anybody's, listen, we may be mad at our parents, but they gave us a lifestyle and a way of working because anybody who is in this city doing what we do, whether it be in the Broadway League, doing a podcast, if you're in this city working and you're surviving, you are the best of the best. Because when they say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. They're not talking about the job you do. They're talking about the lifestyle you live in order to do the job you do. Because this place is hard. At the end of each podcast, uh, we like to ask our guests this one final question, and it's what one piece of advice would you like to share with the Black future leaders of Broadway? I would like to share with the future Black leaders of Broadway is go for it. Go for it. Broadway has been around for many, many years. And there are shoulders that we stand on so that we can now do the things that we do today. There are actors that you don't know. Burt Williams, who was an act, first Black actor in the Zigfield Follies, who during a fire wasn't told that there was a fire or an emergency at the theater. And they told all the white people and he went to work, but they didn't tell him. And his picture is in the new Amsterdam theater where Aladdin sits. You have guys like that. You have wonderful, amazing, beautiful actresses. I mean, we, we stand on the shoulders of Stephanie Mills. We stand on the shoulders of Tiger Haynes. We stand on the shoulders of Gregory Hines. We stand on the shoulders of um, uh, Pearl Bailey, who was, you know, a Hello Dolly. We stand on the shoulders of Ben Vereen. And then those people, the people after them, stand on the shoulders, tell on their shoulders, you got your Brian Stokes Mitchells, you got your Chuck Coopers, you got your freaking Andre McDonald's, who has got more Tonys than anybody that they had to see. You have LaShawn's, you have these people. Uh, you know, Robert Guillaume, the first black phantom. You have Norm Lewis, the first Broadway black phantom. You have these folks who stood there and went through shows that they said this show won't sell because black people don't come to theater. You have these shows, you have these unknown names from Africa that did the Lion King for years and got their kids through college because of that. You are are living in a generation where you can grab a phone and make up a musical on your phone and it could go to Broadway. I say go for it. But know your history and also know your game. This is called show 
business, not show fun, not show family, not show friends. It's called show business. So when someone looks at you and says, Broadway is just a big family, that's a wonderful metaphor. And that's a wonderful thing to say at parties. And that's a wonderful thing to say at the end of the show when the producer goes, guys, we're closing or one big happy family. No, this is show business. So when you, before you get here, know how to know how to deal with your checkbook, know how to balance your budget, know what budget you have so you can make it in this crazy place. Go for it, but be prepared. Go for it. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it. This thing is a blank page for you now. You have got groups of legends who are putting together things in places so that you won't have to go through this. So you need to know how to read a contract. Don't just let your agent read a contract. You need to know how much you are worth and you need to know whether you want to do it or not. And at this point, at this point, go for it, but don't blame anyone for why you didn't get it because there are too many people working hard to put you in a place where you don't have to deal with the crap that these folks from the 2000s all the way down to the 30s had to deal with. You are in 2022. From here on, it's time for you to look at the shoulders you're standing on and see what they did and go, okay, I'm going to go for it. Yes. Thank you, <laughs> James. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank our guests and you, our listeners. You could have been doing anything else, but you chose to spend your time with me, and I am grateful. Be sure to subscribe at bpn.fm slash bbb so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, tell a friend. I'm your host, Janine Scott. And we at the Broadway League hope you enjoyed this episode of the Black Business of Broadway. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 